0: that the media didn't get wind of the prize ahead of time. Now, for his part, Bob was not a rich man, but he eagerly spent all of his little meager savings, his rent money, his bill money, to buy gift cards. And really the hardest part of it all was just keeping it a secret. He was so excited about the looks on his family's faces when he was going to shower them with money. All their problems were over. course the prize never came, right? The prize never came, but eviction notices came. Bills or utilities started to get shut off. And finally Bob contacted me because he needed to borrow money just to tide him over. You know, he swore me to secrecy that I wouldn't say anything about the sweepstakes. But together we found out that it was just a, a scam. We discovered that all the money he spent on those gift cards was just lost. Bob was humiliated. Even years later, he's still humiliated. Poor Bob. Right? I mean, the story that I just told you was about an innocent person falling into the hands of evil men. Bob was at their mercy... And really the only thing that stopped them from stealing more money from Bob is that they already took it all. He had nothing left. When we hear a story like that, that's our reaction. Poor Bob. Poor, gullible, naive, weak Bob. And Mark 14 is the same kind of a story. It's a story where Jesus is abandoned by his friends after one of his most trusted inner circle delivered him over into the hands of men who wanted to kill him. So it's two stories about innocent men and evil men. They're similar, but they're vastly different. And the difference, the biggest difference, is in the telling. Here's the thing, in case you didn't already know, the Bible is an amazing book for lots of reasons. And Mark 14 is just another example of of how amazing it is. See, Mark wrote the shortest gospel. We've seen that already. And and in many instances, we have to go to the other gospels to get a clear picture of what actually happened, right? But don't be fooled by Mark's brevity. He wasn't just some some schlub who, uh, who just decided to jot down some things that Peter said. He was chosen by God to write the very word of God. And carried along by the Holy Spirit, Mark zeroes in on particular details so that we can see not just what Jesus did, but who Jesus was. So Bob was a hapless victim. Poor Bob. And like I said, that's the, that's the response we're supposed to have to his story. That's the reason I told you that story. But Mark 14 is not a story about a hapless victim. Mark 14 is a story about a king. We're not supposed to walk away from this story thinking, poor Jesus. Instead, we're supposed to walk away knowing and seeing that Jesus was powerfully and utterly in control of all of it. So today, I I plan to read the text with just a few comments tossed in. Then I'll make the main point. And then we'll discuss the two halves of the main point. And after that, there's, there's, there's three things I want to focus on that will help to lead us and aim us towards application. And then that's it. So let's get to it. As Pastor Joe said, we're in Mark 14. So um, before we get to the text, though, I just want to say that in today's passage, we're going to see that the hatred of the legal scholars for Jesus reaches its boiling point right they they started to hate him way back in chapter two and that's when um, some scribes came to see Jesus healing the sick and at this particular time a, a paralytic man was lowered down through the the ceiling and instead of just healing the man and sending him on his way Jesus did something different he said he said son your sins are forgiven Now, I believe that Jesus knew that that beautiful sentence would offend those scribes, which it did. After that, the scribes and Pharisees were constantly hounding him. They were always after him. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why why do his disciples not fast? Why was he plucking grain on the Sabbath? They hated him. Then he healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath and a light bulb went off in their minds. In Mark 3.6, the Pharisees started to plot his death. Now in today's passage, we're going to see that, that they had a plan in place. and The only thing that they needed was an opportunity. Enter Judas, the betrayer. Let's start reading. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So Mark just started telling the story of Jesus' betrayal. And then boom, he's suddenly telling a completely unrelated story about a woman pouring ointment on Jesus' head. It seems random, but... Make no mistake, we're supposed to consider this story along with the betrayal of Jesus. Mark is not accidentally telling these stories together. Let's continue in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was is one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus is again prophesying his own death. But with the symbolism of his broken body and his poured out blood, he's Emphasizing how the violence of his death is actually inaugurating the greatest of all covenants that will bring many into the joy of the greatest of all kingdoms. And when they had sung a hymn, this is verse 26, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Don't miss that. Peter is all bluster and bravado at this point, promising to die before he denies. But it wasn't just Peter beating his chest. They all said the same. They all swore to die alongside Jesus. Let's pick up in verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body and they seized him but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Many speculate that this man running away naked is actually Mark the author of the book and and I think they're probably right. But really he he you know he represents all of them the 12 I mean, he's a, he's a shameful coward. He's craven. And the rest of them may not have been naked, but they all ran away. They all ran away on the very same night that they promised to die by Jesus' side. Let's pick it up in chapter, verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all The chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree And some stood stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men are testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated on the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. So Jesus is found guilty. And the Pharisees' plan to kill him worked like a charm. right? Not so fast. You see, certainly he was found guilty, but the Pharisees' plan to kill Jesus actually failed. In verse 55 it says they were looking for testimony against him but found none. Many false witnesses stepped forward but their testimony didn't agree. That means they couldn't even find two liars to tell the same lie. So that means that Judas' betrayal and the Pharisees' plan would have all came to nothing if Jesus hadn't spoken up in verse 62 and admitted point blank that he was the Son of God. And don't think that Jesus just stumbled into their cleverly laid trap. He knew exactly what he was doing. And in fact, this is a, a clear illustration of what, what he said in John 10:18 18, that, that no one took his life, but that he laid it down of his own accord. And earlier in Mark, he says that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, Peter wept because he remembered Jesus' prophecy about denying him. But I can't help but wonder if he didn't also remember Jesus' words, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. How those words must have cut him. So I would state the main point like this. Jesus' betrayal and arrest was an evil act by evil men. But at the same time, it was ordained by our sovereign God and accomplished through the obedience of Jesus. I'll say it again. Jesus' betrayal and arrest was an evil act by evil men, but at the same time, it was ordained by our sovereign God and accomplished through the obedience of Jesus. So I'm going to take the two halves of that main point and just discuss those. So first... Let's say, Let's look at this. Jesus' betrayal and arrest was an evil act by evil men. Have you ever considered the arrest and betrayal of Jesus from the standpoint of the Pharisees? I mean, obviously, surely they didn't see themselves as evil men. I mean, they were the real Jewish leaders, right? Forget Herod. I mean, they were the ones who had to... Uh, keep the peace under the impossible strain of Roman rule. And they were politically savvy enough to know that that if, if a bunch of people started to rally around a zealot who claimed to be the Messiah, then Rome would come and crush them immediately and efficiently. So weren't the scribes and Pharisees Weren't they just trying to keep the peace? Weren't they just trying to sacrifice one man for the good of the many? Well, the truth remains that the scribes and Pharisees intended to kill him. Regardless of their motives, the trial of Jesus was intended to do just that thing, kill him. So if we look at the very first verse in the chapter, they were seeking a way to arrest him by stealth and kill him. They weren't interested in finding the truth. They had no intention of bringing him to trial and letting justice prevail. They might have believed that their motives were pure, but make no mistake, this was murder. And in verse 55, it says that they were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, And they didn't even care if the testimony was true. Verse 56 and 7 say that many bore false witness against him. Many. So they may have been going through the the motions of, of a legitimate trial, but it was a farce. They needed a guilty verdict so that the people would believe that Jesus was a criminal. But they also knew that the things they would have to do to get that guilty verdict had to be done in the dark so that no one could see. And we need to see that Judas, the betrayer, was always a false friend. Judas's very name is synonymous with evil betrayal. It's comical. In John 14, 22, there's an episode where a man named Judas asks Jesus a question, and the writer's quick to point out that it's not Iscariot. Why? Because Judas' name is evil. Judas was a villain. In John 12, 6, we learn that Judas cared nothing about the poor. He was a thief who often helped himself to the money bags. In Luke 22:3, 3, we learn that Satan entered into Judas. And we say, of course he did. It's fitting that Judas would be in cahoots with, with that ancient murderer, father of lies. But Mark doesn't tell us any of those details about Judas Instead, Mark zeroes in on one thing. In verse 20, he says that the betrayer is one of the 12. See, back in chapter 3, Jesus appointed certain men to be his apostles. And from then on, Mark refers to this group as the 12. All through the book, chapter 4, 5, 6, 9, 10, 11, it's the 12, the 12, the 12. Lots of people followed Jesus during his public ministry, but the 12 were the ones that he chose specifically. They were his inner circle, his friends. I think it's interesting that Mark only mentions Judas by name twice in this chapter, and both times he's careful to point out that Judas was one of the 12. And all that is to say that Judas was the close friend from Psalm 41, nine, the one in whom Jesus trusted, who ate his bread, and who ultimately turned and lifted his heel against him. This was an evil deed by evil men. The second half of the main point says that Jesus' betrayal and arrest was ordained by God and accomplished through Jesus' obedience. First thing to look at here is that God is powerfully in control of history. Isaiah 46, 9-10 talks about prophetic knowledge. When, it, when God says, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. But what's truly amazing is the very next statement in Isaiah 46, 11. It says, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Ephesians 1.11 says that God works all things. How? By the counsel of his will. God is able to declare the end from the beginning because in his omnipotence, he will accomplish it. Now, Jesus' betrayal, suffering, and death was prophesied. In God's Word. If we look at verse 21, it says, The Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. What does that mean, as it is written of Him? Where is it written that the Messiah would suffer and die? I mean, the Jews certainly didn't expect that. They expected a warrior king. But in verse 21, Jesus is identifying Himself with the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. And what does it say there? Isaiah 53.10 says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Look at verse 49. It says, Let the scriptures be fulfilled. What scriptures? Well, I have already mentioned it already, but what does it say in Psalm 41.9? It says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And that's exactly how it happened. In verse 27, Jesus himself applies Zechariah 13.7 to his betrayal and arrest. He said, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And that's exactly how it happened. Probably the most breathtaking of all is Zechariah 11.13. And that says, then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. The lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. And according to Matthew 27 5 and 8, that's exactly how it happened. You see, Jesus knew the future and he obeyed. Now it's clear that Jesus was fully aware of all these prophecies about him, about himself. But it goes even further than that, because all through this chapter, if we read the text carefully, we'll see that Jesus displayed that same remarkable knowledge of future events all through the chapter. On the day of preparation, he knew that there would be a man in the city who would lead his disciples to just the right place. He knew that the twelve would betray him, or one of the twelve would betray him, sorry. He even knew the exact minute when that would happen. He knew that everyone would abandon him. He knew that Peter would deny him. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he knew that there was something worse than death waiting for him. A cup that only he could drink. You see, Jesus knew what was happening. He always knew. But he kept moving forward, face first, right into it. Who spoke the end from the beginning? God did. Who accomplished it through his obedience? Jesus did. So what what does this all mean? I want to take a minute to talk about free will. Simply simply put, free will is a person's ability to choose whatever or choose between different courses of action, right? The the Pharisees plotted Jesus' death of their own free will Judas betrayed Jesus of his own free will the false witnesses lied of their own free will they chose an evil course of action they weren't robots but according to Peter in acts 2:23 Peter said that Jesus' betrayal and arrest all happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So, the important lesson here is that we all need to see that history, we all need to learn that history is not ultimately in the control of people. Because God accomplished the perfect counsel of his will through the actions of sinful men. That's an undeniable truth of Scripture but it's also a a glorious mystery. And I think that some Christians struggle with that mystery. And I think we struggle because it seems like an indefensible position. I mean, if you tell an atheist that God is utterly sovereign and in control of all things, they're going to turn right around and say, well, then how can you say God is good with all the evil that's in the world? I don't know how to win debates against atheists. But I do know the answer to that question. I can say that God is good because the Bible tells me so. Over and over and over again. The fact is, we don't have to defend the truths of Scripture. We just have to proclaim them. At the end of the day, people in this modern, enlightened era still give their lives to our sovereign God, even though there are still mysteries that we can't fully understand yet. Ultimately, no matter how you define free will, no matter if you love the truth of God's sovereignty or struggle with it, we must submit to the truth and the mystery of what Jesus said in verse 21. He said there, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. And that's God's sovereign control. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Man's choices. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Man must answer to God for his choices. So we've considered the main point. But there's still a couple of things that, that we can learn from Mark 14, and I want to focus on three. First, let's look at the woman's lavish, feudal gift and learn. My opinion, the event in verses three to nine, where the woman anointed Jesus' body for burial ahead of time, it's heartbreaking. I'm reminded of an ordinary mother. An ordinary mother who realizes that the world is a dangerous place and that her ability to protect her children is limited. Or maybe she has older children, older children who are caught up in drugs and alcohol, just making terrible choices. Maybe her children are struggling with crippling depression, so common these days. But the worst part of all that is that she can't fix any of that. And she can't stop what's coming. But that ordinary mother just keeps going through the messy day-to-day work of loving her children and caring for them the best way she can. Desperately doing what she can. See, that's what the woman is doing in verses 3 to 9. I'm not saying she's Jesus' mother. But I get the impression that when Jesus said that he was about to be killed she heard him and she understood him in a way that none of the other apostles did and in that understanding she knew that there was no way to fix it and that there was nothing she could do to stop it so she did something that every ordinary mother understands she did what she could to honor Jesus and this man Jesus honored her the very creator and sustainer of the universe, said that what she did was beautiful. So mothers, fathers, guardians, husbands, wives, learn. Do what you can. Don't give up. Let's look at Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane and learn. We sing a song in this very church that goes, that on the cross my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Now it's a deep and majestic truth that Jesus loves us and gladly bore our sins on the cross. But in the Garden of Gethsemane that night there was distress. There was sorrow unto death. Jesus prayed that the Father would take this cup from his lips. But what cup is he talking about? I mean, obviously, it's suffering of some kind. But the word cup here is apocalyptic language. It's not referring to ordinary suffering or momentary pain. Isaiah 51.22 calls it the cup of staggering and the bowl of God's wrath. But it's the book of Revelation that gives us the fullest picture of this horrific truth about this cup. Revelation 149 9-11 says, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. That's hell. That's eternal, physical, conscious torment. Suffering beyond anything that anyone has ever experienced. Now, if you're like me, when you think of Jesus' passion, you're reminded, or maybe you think of scourging, or thorns, nails the size of railroad spikes. But Jesus, in his divine omniscience, knew that there was suffering more terrible than any of that waiting for him. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, your Savior, in his humanity, felt anguish about that cup. There was no gladness in the Garden of Gethsemane that night. But in spite of his fear and his dread, Jesus prayed, Your will be done, not mine. That means that in the moment of Jesus' greatest human frailty and fear, in a story filled with betrayal and cowardice, we are shown the single bravest act of obedience in all of human history. This Christian is obeying causing you anguish? Is it painful for you? Look to your Savior and learn obedience from the one who obeyed unto death. Now let's look at Peter's sin and learn. I believe that Judas is in hell right now. Remember in verse 21, Jesus said, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. In John 17, 12, Jesus said said that Judas was lost and called him the son of destruction. The King James Version renders that the son of perdition. And that word perdition means the state of being in actual hell. In in 2 Thessalonians 2 and 3, Paul used that same title to describe another person, the Antichrist. But friends, the truth is that Judas was not doomed to hell because betraying the Son of Man was unforgivable. Judas is a son of perdition because he never sought forgiveness from the only one who could actually give it. Judas had a sweet Savior, just like you and me, but he turned his back on that Savior. And I believe that's why Mark told us the story of of Judas and Peter at the same time. You see, I think the Spirit wants us to see Peter's actions as a kind of betrayal. And not just Peter, but all of them. The cowards who ran Why would he want us to see that? Why would he want us to see those things together? Because Peter had something that Judas did not. Peter had an advocate interceding for him before the Father. He had a redeemer. In Luke 22:31, Jesus said that Satan asked to sift Peter like wheat, and the implication from that passage is that the answer was yes. Sift away, devil. But Jesus prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail. What faith? Saving faith. Faith in the promises of God. This is faith that saves all of Christians. The same faith. This is faith that cannot be thwarted because Jesus prayed. Christian, learn that your sin, your betrayal of Jesus cannot negate the promises of God. Have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Then according to Romans 10, 9, you'll be saved. Period. But what if you're not a Christian? What then? It's not good news, I'm afraid. But there's hope. And I know about this hope because... It changed my life. You see, one thing that you need to know about me is that I'm no pastor. I don't have a degree. But I'm not just uneducated. I'm also a coward, a thief, a liar. I'm a murderer and an adulterer at heart. I've hated people without any cause. I've cheated and betrayed even some of the people that I love. But I have a blessed hope. My sins were as scarlet, but God washed me white as snow. And you might say, what does that even mean? If you haven't given your life to Jesus, then sin is a kind of stain that's on you. It's a kind of filth. You can't see it, but it's a spiritual reality, and it's all over you. That's what it means when it says that your, skin, your sins were as scarlet. You have a spiritual stain on you. And if you die with a spiritual stain on you, then you will go to hell just like Judas. Atoning for your own sin will not wash it off. Punishing yourself, even to the point of suicide like Judas, it won't wash it off giving the 30 pieces of silver back didn't wash it off of Judas. Being a good person won't wash this stain off. So stop trusting in your ability to do something that you can't do. Forget all that and trust in Jesus. Why? Because scripture says that Jesus is the only one who can wash away that stain. That's what it means to be saved. It's a cleansing. And that's the good news. But the best part is that Jesus wants to save you. And he's ready to save you right now. And maybe you say, well, what do I do? I like how one pastor put it. This great truth. He said, if you're ever interested... God will forgive every sin you've ever committed and ever will commit completely and totally if you'll just ask him. Just ask him. So look, Mark 14 may be overshadowed and polluted by betrayal and falling away, but the story is not about Judas or the Pharisees or even Peter. The story is about Jesus, the chosen king, the offspring of Eve. But it's easy for us as Christians to say, "Yeah, oh, the Bible is all about Jesus from beginning to end." But what we need to, what we need to see is that everything is about Jesus, all of history. You're a part of it now, but it's still about Jesus, not you. He's the main character, not you. See, that's what it means when we say all glory goes to God. That's what it means to give our lives to Christ. We live or we are living our lives christ work, because he's worthy and he's powerful. It may, it may look like Jesus was weak and fell into the clutches of evil men, but he was totally in control. And he was in full obedience to the perfect will of the Father. He's still in control, and we should praise him for that and follow him. And if you've betrayed him, get back up because he's strong. Thank you.